0: Coming up on Tech Nation, we discover what science might do for food, energy, water, and the environment in the Arequipa Valley of Peru. I'll speak with Purdue University geosciences professor Tim Philly. Then on Tech Nation Health, what the World Health Organization calls out as a burning need in many countries worldwide, healthcare management. Steve Samet joins us for a solution for Africa. And we'll hear from Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft. He'll tell us about electroceuticals, electricity as medicine. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation.
1: Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes.
0: The first time I visited Paris was at the dawn of the Internet. Mobile phones were a dream, and going to Europe was akin to traveling to another planet, far away and pretty much out of communication with everyone. As a tourist, you walked around with a guidebook and a map. Both on paper. Wherever you were, you looked up and saw other tourists. They too were holding up maps and staring intently. Maps would turn, guidebooks consulted. The people would look up and around and crane their necks and then go back to the map for another round of where are we? Where are we trying to go and how are we going to get there? It was all a part of the Paris experience, but no more. While I've been to Paris many times over the years, it seems that the full digitalization of the tourism experience has finally taken place. The key technologies here are the Internet, the smartphone, and GPS. You always know where you are, and you can ask them where you want to go, how to drive or take public transportation, or even walk. And the instructions all come with alternate routes. Want to get a car to drive you from exactly that spot? Uber, of course, since Lyft hasn't reached Paris yet. And as you sit in your Uber seat, you watch the route you are being driven on your smartphone. A bit more out of body is that it keeps updating you as to the exact minute you will arrive at your destination, adjusting for traffic while continuing to suggest alternate routes. So there you have it, walk in the wrong direction, your smartphone shows you walking away from where you want to go, so you turn around and you're back on track. Even when you rent a car, your phone talks to you, takes you all over town, and out to the auto routes, confident in telling you precisely which lane. And while all of this is going on, someone from home calls you, and they didn't even know you had left. Give yourself up to the technology, and you are home free. But watch your battery life, lose your charge, and it's back to the old days. Navigating Paris has always been a challenge. Streets coming and going at diagonals and roundabouts every few blocks with five or six entrances and exits. The official sections of town, the arrondissement, are laid out in a spiral. The 5th is next to the 6th, all right, but it's also adjacent to the 13th. Once you realize that, technology never looks so good. I kept thinking about the antithesis of these diagonal streets and spiral layouts, and that would be Salt Lake City. The blocks were all laid out in squares, 660 feet to a side, 10 acres to a block, They were set precisely side by side with room in between so that a healthy-sized road could run down each side. They numbered all the streets as they went away from a single point on Temple Square, noting if you were north, south, east, and west. Find yourself navigating in Salt Lake and you don't need GPS. You're here? You want to go there? It's all pretty obvious. Meanwhile, back in Paris, the street numbers on buildings almost defy explanation. So don't begin to think that technology has turned Paris into Salt Lake City. But technology does give you more time to experience other mysteries of Paris. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Today on Tech Nation, what can science do for a combination mining and agricultural area, which until recently was simply a Peruvian desert? I speak with Purdue University geosciences professor Tim Philly about the interconnection of food, energy, water, and the environment in the Arequipa Valley of Peru. Then on Technation Health, International Educator Steve Samet talks about the development of healthcare care management expertise in Africa, and we'll hear from Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Doctor Daniel Kraft about electroceuticals electricity as medicine. Many people know of, or at least have heard of, Lima, Peru, but few are aware of its capital and its second largest city, Arequipa. Tim Philly is a professor of geosciences at Purdue University. I asked him, paint us a picture. Tell us about Arequipa and the Arequipa Valley
2: of Peru. So Arequipa is both a city and a region. So it is in the southern part of Peru, and it's in the deserty area near, near Chile. It's an abundance of natural resources. Um, incredible geological, ecological, biological, and landscape diversity. Uh, in a little over 100 miles, you can go from sea level to 20,000 feet. You can go from coastal desert to alpine meadows and lakes nestled under massive glaciers. Um, it, it's astounding. It's, um, it's got huge ore deposits, untapped resources. Abundant fisheries on the coast, uh, glaciers that provide life-giving water to the desert regions and the the mid-altitude regions. It's got astounding natural beauty, really deep cultural indigenous heritage that you can see in the architecture and the art and, and the music. And that also plays out really neat in terms of the cultural diversity because the food is astounding. It's just this this fusion of all these different cultures, and it, that's not to be missed.
0: <laughs> now I know that people have been living there uh, for as long as people have been there, but that there's been the Western influences for for a number of hundred years. This oh, yeah. goes back.
2: Oh, it does. Um, uh, so, you know, obviously the Spanish uh, were controlling it for quite some time, and the, the, the viceroy, I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly, but ran the uh, southern Latin American region from Peru, so it was a main capital. And so the, when you go into these colonial cities, and Arequipa's the city is actually referred to as the White City, and it's made from the volcanic rock deposits and these beautiful, beautiful colonial architecture there. And, and you're, you're, you're just transported back hundreds of years. It's amazing.
0: Now, wherever humans go, wherever they've lived for a long time, there's always a big impact on the land. What's happened over these centuries to Arequipa?
2: Well, you know, because Arequipa is, and Peru in general, are blessed with many natural resources, um, the glaciers, uh, copper, the zinc, the gold, uh, the fisheries, right? There's been obviously massive extraction efforts to recover that and use it for growth. And so, for the example, the mining industry has been used for thousands of years, and so all the way back into the Inca. And so there's impacts of that locally when when they mined it. But as you became more industrialized and extractive efficiencies became greater, and the ability to pull out more um, increased, you, you had greater and greater accumulative effects of some of these negative externalities, as you might call them. So right now, um, Mining represents uh, greater than what 60%, I think, of the economy uh, of Peru. And efficient mines, well-run mines, you know, obviously have a, a great effort in terms of environmental protection, water reuse and such. But unfortunately, there's also a lot of illegal mining that goes on in Peru. Really? Oh, my goodness, yes. And, and so the, the local impacts uh, are devastating in terms of some of the mercury that comes out, um, the, the, the mineral exports as they're rolling down the streams. And so that is a big problem. It, it kind of gets to a, 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 a large part of the, a problem with Peru in terms of monitoring, measuring, and regulating many of these activities is that there's a large degree of informality in the economy in Peru.
0: Give us a sense today how many people are spread over, what kind of square miles or however you want to spread that out, and then where are the mines in relation to that?
2: So the nation of Peru has about 30 million people in it, and those are mostly concentrated in the north. In the southern part where Arequipa is, the city itself has only about 1 million, so it's a small region. The population is concentrated in that Arequipa city region. And so there's vast tracts of desert in Arequipa where no one lives or where no one lived until recently. And this is actually an important part of the work that we're doing. Um, So what they've been doing to basically expand out of this valley that Arequipa is in, to expand out agriculture... They're undertaking some of the most massive irrigation projects you know, the world has seen, pulling water in from the glacial uplands, uh, redistributing river waters up into the highlands, and creating you know, what they are looking to, to achieve as is, is agricultural oases.
0: And where are the mines all in through these areas? Are they separate? They are scattered.
2: Yeah, the mines, the, the, the mineral reserves are scattered throughout Peru. Many of them are untapped. But if you look at Etequipas, one of the largest mines is actually right outside of town.
0: So it's hard to say what's the problem here. Is it the mining? Is it all this water being redistributed? Is it the impact of agriculture, which can be tremendous? Is it the fact there are more people here? Is it the fact that they're taking over what used to be desert, now they're making it arable land? And that's just the beginning.
2: Uh, The whole issue is, is that these problems are interrelated. And so you have competition for natural resources among major industries. So developing agriculture, which may only represent, let's say, 6% of um, the GDP of Peru versus mining, which is the major, actually, resource of Peru. But they compete for the same resource, water. They compete for, in some areas, land. Um, They both bring benefit. They both helped Peru Uh, lower poverty rates enormously over the last few decades. You know, in the cities, it might be 20% now, and in the rural areas, it's still quite high in the upper 50s, but these new types of production, these new ventures that they're doing are generating great good, new infrastructure, new resources for education, but they have negative accumulated impacts. And so what we're doing is to try to look at the conflicts between these developing sectors in the economy, seeing how we can develop tools to actually explore how to share resources and how to talk to the people who are the stakeholders who will be actually making the decisions about how these resources are monitored and and measured and shared.
0: Now, usually when a professor says to me, you know, we're working with these people or we're doing this, we're talking about a professor's individual research, at best a couple of colleagues, uh, some graduate students. But as I understand it, Purdue University, as a, as, in a much wider basis, is working with the people in Arequipa.
2: Yeah, and, and actually the, the whole way that this process developed was actually quite fascinating. Um, There is the university we're working with, which is the National University of St. Augustine. Their president and vice president really are, are quite visionary, and they were looking to transform their university into a beacon in Latin America for sustainable use of natural resources. And they had developed a way, a mechanism to access some of the tax dollars that had been accumulating from the mining industry, and to use them to actually get into a, a technical alliance with a university to develop capacity in their programs for uh, soil monitoring, for research, for social sciences in this sustainability area. And so they had made a connection with a not-for-profit organization called CORE Foundation. And CORE Foundation contacted Purdue and it actually started off sort of peer-to-peer. They talked to a few faculty members, one-on-one, and, and nothing was ever clicking. Everything was too hyper-focused in one particular area. So they then talked to the director of Discovery Park, Tomás Díaz de la Rubia. And, Tomás, and what's
0: Discovery Park? Ah,
2: so Discovery Park is a program that doesn't exist in any particular college within Purdue. It is outside of that, and it is a collection of centers and institutes that are geared towards promoting innovation and research and commercialization in areas of nanotechnology, sensor application, cancer research, defense food security, climate change.
0: Anything the university does, you'll find in Discovery Park at some level.
2: Well, yes, but it, it, it what it does is it's a space that is designed to gather expertise across the university and to address really grand challenge problems, things that really required multidisciplinary, transdisciplinary ideas that really can't be developed within a department or even two departments. And so Discovery Park provides that home. It provides resources. It provides the ability to incubate and catalyze new ideas. And so it was at that point that the idea of, like, let's pull together everything that Purdue has to offer in re- in relation to the social sciences, environmental awareness, um, holistic watershed management, and soil sustainability and health, tech development in arid environments. Pull it together and create an institute-level program with our partner UNSA now to solve these challenges. And UNSA is the the
0: name for the university in Arequipa.
2: Yes, UNSA is the acronym that that we use for Universidad Nacional uh, de saint Augustine.
0: You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira gut, and my guest today is Tim Philly. He's a professor at Purdue University and head of the Philly Lab in the Department of Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Sciences. He also co-directs the scientific programs at the Arequipa Nexus Institute for Food, Energy, Water, and the Environment at Peru's St. Augustine National University. Now, here we have the Arequipa Nexus Institute, and you're co-directing the scientific programs. What kind of science will you do here in Arequipa?
2: We have a a number of different scientific engagement levels that we're doing. Mm -hmm. We're first starting off with infrastructure projects where we are looking across large-scale tracts of land, large watersheds, and taking tools, modeling tools we've developed at Purdue, That actually help people to make decisions about how to better manage that land. We're taking these models, transforming them into an Arequipa-specific model, so co-developing them with modelers in Arequipa to incorporate issues of climate, incorporate issues of resource management, incorporate issues of geography, and making them specific for the stakeholders of that region. Some of the other things we're doing is directly addressing some of the inefficiencies and problems with irrigation in the region. So we have programs that are looking at robotic systems for continuous monitoring and delivery of water, fresh water in these irrigation systems. So taking our tech development programs, working with UNSAS tech development programs, and looking at how we can take these robotic systems into these desert environments to maximize efficiency of water delivery and minimize contamination.
0: What do the robots do?
2: A couple of things. Uh, One of the systems is going to be designed for looking at monitoring of actually highly contaminated water where you might not actually want to send someone because it might be too dangerous. So these will have sensors on them. They will be automated systems that can go into highly contaminated water. That's one of them. The other system will be actually looking at delivery systems for irrigation. And so you can have timed systems, in-situ monitoring of water quality, water amounts. It will check for leakage. And so to maximize the input of water to minimize loss, because remember, again, this is a desert region. You don't want to lose water. You want to put just what you need on.
0: I keep thinking that if suddenly we're going out into a desert region and we're turning it into an agricultural region, what's the
2: impact on that? Well, the the world's got a lot of experience with this. We've done this a lot. We do it all the time. (laughs) We do it in Southern California, (laughs) right, the city of Los Angeles. Um, There's some very interesting things that have been going on uh, in the Arequipa region. And so we've created a very lush environment. People are benefiting greatly. You're able to produce avocados, grapes, pomegranates, and people are making money. But the problem is sometimes the water source is contaminated. And so you have river water that maybe shouldn't be used for irrigation being used for irrigation in some places. That needs to be monitored. You have water that's being added in a very inefficient way. Flood irrigation is just drenched over the surface of the water. And what happens is massive amounts of water goes through, leaches out salts, but that water doesn't go away. It travels through the ground and it hits A boundary, let's say. Maybe it's 50 feet below ground, 40 feet below ground, and then starts to move out into the valley. And what's pouring out is salt water. And so even though you're doing this wonderful thing in terms of creating agriculture on these uplands, the valleys now are getting this influx of very salty water, which is changing their whole ecosystem. So there are these negative externalities for what we're doing and that what we're trying to do is to model all of that, to look at it into totality and to talk to the people who are working there so to find out exactly what's going wrong, what's going right, and then how to basically have creative solutions. Um, This also brings up a point of how the social sciences are so integral in our research. We need to talk to the stakeholders. We need to talk to the practitioners. We're sending our scientists, our social scientists out. They're looking at ways of addressing these problems, looking at new methods of bringing people together to form uh, models of how to address conflict because you have people in the uplands who are creating agriculture in a new area, but potentially contaminating the lowlands. And so those communities need to be brought together to find potential solutions. The fascinating thing about this example is I've, I spent the last three weeks in Peru, and we went visiting farms looking for potential collaborators among the farmers there. And we met a farmer, uh, Mr. Bustamante, and he took us out for about an hour. Showed us all his great new vineyards, all his new agricultural tracts he's put in. And we were asking him, well, you know, what are the problems that you have? How can we help you? you know, what what can we do for you in this relationship? And he smiled and he said, just kind of put me off a little bit. We piled into his car and we drove to the edge of an escarpment, a large valley, and he pointed out to the horizon, and as far as you could see, about 40 feet down on the cliff was all new green lush things and plants and riverlets of water flowing out. And he said, we're wasting water, and it's hurting the valley. He said, "And he, look what I'm doing. And he showed us tens of hectares of land where he put in drip irrigation, small tubes where the water is delivered precisely by the roots. He says, I'm the first one to put that in in this region. I want other people to do that. Now, that's
0: a farmer. What about the miners, both legal and illegal? What's happening there? Are they being told to shut down? What can you do?
2: There is a lot of local opposition to new mines, and people have actually shut down the development of, of new mining production. There's a lot of opposition, particularly when mines start to talk about how they're going to use water resources in a very dry region. And so UNSA itself is actually setting up a number of different institutes in relationship to different universities. Some of them will specialize in actually sustainable mining practices. And we'll be partnering with them down the line. Right now, the Nexus Institute that we are running is going to be focusing on more watershed development, monitoring of contamination, monitoring of soil health and clean water, and providing solutions in the form of these holistic models and how to work in the context of where they are right now.
0: Meanwhile, back in Indiana, you're the interim director for the Center for the Environment at Discovery Park. Correct. But in the Department of Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Sciences, there is the Philly Lab. And I have to say, I thought, oh, this is really great. I'll be able to figure out what you really do, you know, when you're left alone to your own devices. Unfortunately, it's called Terrestrial Stable Isotope Biogeochemistry.
2: Sorry.
0: Yeah, it's... (laughs) I, we, we could work with you on this. I think we could work. I don't even want you to parse it. I want you to tell me okay. what it means. All right. Because <laughs> so, there's a whole lot of people you have there working as we speak.
2: I, I am a professor of geochemistry and agronomy. And so that means I work in the terrestrial environment. I work on land. Um, my group blends principles and tools from those two systems geochemistry and agronomy.
0: And I think a lot of people don't know what geochemistry and agronomy is.
2: Oh, okay. Well, let me step back a little further. Um, So, what I try to do is I try to look at what controls the health of soil. I look at what controls the destruction of soil. And I look at all the influences from different types of land use, let's say agriculture or forestry, changes in climate, erosion, uh, changes in um, contaminants, and how those control how soil evolves, how soil um, devolves, and how you can maintain it in a healthy way.
0: I think what I'm hearing is soil is actually created and evolves and erodes and comes back together.
2: Soil is very dynamic. Um, and soil is really not a renewable resource. We have to be very careful with soil. Soil takes a long time to evolve in most environments. And so that's kind of the research that we focus on. We, we look at what makes up the soil, the minerals, the organic matter, the microbes in it, and how they respond to things that promote good soil production or how they respond to stresses that actually break apart that soil and cause sometimes irreparable damage to it. And so soil is is something that's quite precious, um, and we have to protect it. uh, Because in some places, soils take thousands and thousands of years to develop. And in a matter of decades, you can destroy all of that work over time, and it won't come back in our lifetime or your grandkids' lifetimes. Hence the Dust Bowl. Hence the Dust in Bowl. In
0: the 30s in Oklahoma. And
2: it can take generations to rebuild soil, but it won't come back to what it was. It's still useful. It's still usable. It still gives you your maize or your soy, but it's not the same as what it, as what it was. And it requires more energy, more emphasis to, to get from it what we need than when we started with it.
0: Meanwhile, back in Peru, back in Arequipa, we have a whole new land out here that in the past just sat there forever for millennia it was desert
2: what we're trying to do is again look at the system in its totality how much do we have to put in to keep getting out what we need what are the negative aspects of what we're doing sometimes we don't know yet um we need to figure that out in terms of contaminants in terms of salination of of groundwater and then looking to see how we can sustain it because in reality what they're doing is pushing up and and even exceeding the limits of what that geology that climate that environment can provide you are putting in massive amounts of energy of moving that water and dumping it in the fertilizer all of that is needed to get that agriculture out but is it sustainable that's the question
0: I've been speaking with Purdue University professor Tim Philly, co-director of the scientific programs at the Arequipa Nexus Institute for Food, Energy, Water, and the Environment. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation and Tech Nation Health are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show on Tech Nation Health, one solution to a global problem cited by the World Health Organization, healthcare management. And we'll hear from Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent, Dr. Daniel Kraft, about electroceuticals, electricity as medicine. Stay with us. listening To Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Purdue University professor Tim Philly about the work of the scientific programs at the Nexus Institute for Food, Energy, Water, and the Environment in Arequipa, Peru. How well do we know the answer to sustainability in that framework ever? Are we really hip to the beat on this? Like you show us an area and we can tell you what is sustainable? Well,
2: so you can. Think about this. So 70% of the world's high-altitude equatorial glaciers are in Peru. Right? They have lost in what? some... Yeah.
0: <laughs> high altitude. So
2: high altitude around the equator, right? So, yeah. so high altitude, meaning that you're talking um, um, 3,000 uh, meters above sea level and above, right? And they are around the equator. Most of those are locked in Peru. And so as, well, as the water comes out over the Atlantic Ocean, it reaches these high mountains and dumps all its water out and forms these glaciers. And all the air that comes out towards the Pacific has no water. That's why there's a desert on that side. Now, those glaciers have lost um, 30 plus percent of their mass in the last few decades. So Peru is looking at a water crisis by mid-century. The farmers know that. Mr. Bustamante, one of the first things he told me is he's worried about the future of his water. He's thinking about putting in deep wells so he can get water from the ground because he knows eventually those glaciers will be gone, and then the farming is gone.
0: Seems to me they're pretty clear that climate disruption is happening.
2: Oh, it's very clear. They know that. They know they're working against planetary limits right now
0: because of their interesting situation, it's not fogged by, well, I'm in a city or I can go to the market and I can turn on the tap and the water is here. They can actually see these things change and feel them. Yeah.
2: You can see the changes in in water movement down the rivers, right? Those, Those fluxes are changing. They're diminishing in some areas. In some areas, they're actually increasing because so much melt is happening now. It's a boom for agriculture. But they also know that that will go away
0: that's a short term it's a boom then bust boom and there will be a bust so part of that is what the nexus institute is studying as well
2: it is it's to look at the system right now and to see what you cannot waste right so right now the the types of irrigation that is most dominant there is flood irrigation just drenching the land there are other technologies that you need to be thinking about to maximize conservation of that water But they're going to have to do this in a big way. They're going to have to re-engineer all the sectors of their economies, the nutrient sector, waste from um, livestock. They're going to have to re-engineer the biomass sector, waste from agriculture. They're going to have to couple all the streams out of uh, their economies so there is no waste. Make it restorative. Add that biomass back into land or rebuild soil, or actually, in this case build soil because it wasn't actually a productive soil before. Take the nutrient waste from the animals, bring that back into the soil to create those soil structures, and make sure you're not wasting water. They need to make their economies regenerative, restorative for their land.
0: Something that is part of this, but we frequently forget about, is food and what we now call food security. How does this play a role
2: uh, food security is uh, encompasses many things. it encompasses distribution systems it encompasses food safety. Um, is your food contaminated It encompasses food nutrition. Um, poverty is a big part of it insecurity in terms of whether you can afford to buy food coupled to global markets. Are there pressures on your local economy to produce things that you don't eat, but you ship off to another country? So food security wraps all those things in there. And actually, this is one of the main emphasis of the nexus. So our food security center within Discovery Park, led by Gabisa Ejeda, who is a World Food Prize winner, is heading one of the projects to actually develop an international food security center at UNSA to address these issues.
0: Well, Tim, this is terrific. I hope either you bring that wonderful farmer back or you take me there. <laughs> I, want, I, want, I want to drive around in the car with him. <laughs> well, he, he will
2: sit you down, and he will pull it out a very large bottle of something called Pisco, which is a brandy he makes from his grape, and you will love it.
0: <laughs> I will. I will. Uh, thank you for joining us, and I hope you come back and see us again. Thank you. My guest today is Purdue University Professor Tim Philly, head of the Philly Lab in the Department of Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Sciences, and co-director of the scientific programs at the Arequipa Nexus Institute for Food, Energy, Water, and the Environment, a joint alliance of Purdue University and Peru's National University of San Agustin. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Welcome to Tech Nation Health, reimagining the future of health and healthcare with the emergence of new technologies and breakthrough science. When countries are in need of medical assistance, we usually think of sending supplies and healthcare workers. But according to the World Health Organization, more is needed. We'll talk about what that need is, and then we'll hear from Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Doctor Daniel Kraft. He'll talk about electricity as medicine. Steve Samet is an international educator in healthcare and life science management. The World Health Organization is absolutely adamant. We need more healthcare workers. We need more doctors. We need more nurses, we need more physician's assistants, you name it. Exactly, right but, down the line. But lately, they've been saying, we need more than that. What is that?
3: What they've begun to recognize, uh, and it's its astonishing that it's taken this long, is that you cannot really have viable health care systems or viable hospitals or viable clinics or whatever health services unless you have professionally trained managers, And historically, the default has been that uh, physicians, often at the peak of their career, who tend to be the technically most competent, get drafted into managerial roles. Uh, And although they may have the uh, interpersonal skills or not, they certainly don't have the technical skills or preparation and management. And as a result, things don't work as well as they should. And what are the consequences of things not working well? Well, probably many of your listeners uh, have heard of the concept of the brain drain, uh, whereby physicians or nurses who are trained in one country at the expense of that country find greener pastures, uh, not necessarily just for better compensation, but for a better environment in which to practice uh, nursing or medicine. And in my view, and I think many now agree, that that is a failure of management, When people cannot find professional satisfaction, uh, take care of patients the way they were trained to, they're going to look elsewhere. So the solution, develop academic programs and executive programs uh, in order to professionalize management. And that's what I've been working on.
0: Well, one of the areas we've been working on is to do this in Africa, throughout Africa. First instance, in Nairobi. Tell Mm -hmm. us about what you did there.
3: Yeah, that was quite interesting. Uh, uh, In uh, uh, September of 2011, I happened to be in Nairobi on some other business. And while there, uh, I was introduced to the founding dean of the Business School of Strathmore University which uh, is a school that was an institution that was founded uh, right around the time of Kenyan independence in the early 1960s uh, and which formed a business school um, uh, only uh, 10, 11 years ago now. And the founding dean, uh, Dr. George Jenga, uh, and I, we hit it off and had a wide-ranging conversation. And I happened to mention to him that I was working in India with the Indian School of Business and the Wharton School in developing a healthcare management MBA. He became quite animated and said he had been wanting to start a similar program in Kenya for years but didn't know how to get started uh, and asked if I would help him. And I'm not good at saying no, especially for things like that. Uh, and I said, Yeah, I'll, I'll work on it with you. And he said, You know, this could be the first healthcare management MBA in Kenya. I said, Oh, that makes it all the more interesting. So that evening, when I was back in my hotel room, uh, I started um, uh, Googling uh, uh, programs in Africa, and I found that he was correct. There were, it would be the first in Kenya, but it would actually also be the first on the African continent. Including Egypt, including South Africa. There just simply was no real provision for a degree in healthcare management f- f- on a continent where a billion people reside. Uh, so that struck me as quite astonishing and uh, drove home the notion that something really needed to be done. So uh, uh, I undertook uh, for the remainder of the year. Uh, a uh, on-the-ground detailed uh, needs assessment, uh, during which I interviewed hospital administrators, nurses, physicians, health ministers, uh, basically anybody who would talk to me, who had a who was a stakeholder in healthcare. And this is in Nairobi. This is in Nairobi to so, find
0: out what the state of the system is.
3: That's right. And what I found was that uh, Ke- Kenya, is, as a country, is very serious about its health system, uh, but there are still gaps and. They were about to uh, enter what their constitution of 2010 mandated, which was devolution of their healthcare system, which is a different way of saying decentralization. So whereas the national government uh, controlled um, health spending and health services uh, throughout the country, now they pushed that responsibility off to the counties, counties being the equivalent of states. Uh, in Kenya, which meant that the need for management was about to explode uh, uh, because uh, uh, all of these counties now were going to have effectively not effectively autonomous health systems
0: they had their own medical facilities
3: th- that 's right uh, their own medical facilities and uh, th- there had been uh, it 's not the fault of Kenya or any other African country but They hadn't built the human resource base to do that. I spent the remainder of uh, 2011 developing the first curriculum uh, for the program and sent that off to Dr. Njenga. Actually, it it happened to be Christmas Day, 2011. I remember that because I was teaching in Israel, so I thought it would be a nice Christmas present for him. And uh, uh, we then spent... uh, 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 2012 doing two things, vetting the curriculum, uh, back with the stakeholders, and we did focus groups. Uh, we also had to uh, go through the approval process of Strathmore University, which is quite rigorous. Uh, Strathmore has extraordinarily high standards uh, as an academic institution. And uh, the feedback we were getting was interesting because what I had designed was a program that was built on the traditional core of 12 mba courses and then i allowed for half a dozen elective and major courses in health management and we were getting very consistent feedback that that really did not serve the needs and what they what everyone wanted to see was a curriculum that included healthcare content from day one uh, even in the uh, financial and managerial accounting course, in the marketing course, in the human resources course. So I had to go back and essentially redesign the syllabus and write course descriptions for an 18-course program. And I, I, you're a professor, so you know that typically <laughs> a, a, a one—
0: You didn't do that over the weekend.
3: Yeah. No, ra- ra- no, no, it was not over the weekend. <laughs> And unlike the U.S., where in most universities 36 classroom hours constituted a a course, um, the requirement in Kenya is 45 hours. So that's a lot of content to fill. We had to do that for 18 courses, and the country requires of all master's degree programs a dissertation, uh, which is uh, serious original research. And uh, that has to be completed before a degree can be conferred. And as of 2018, those dissertations will have to be published in order to certify graduation. So they've set a standard that I think relatively few American students can meet. People would be unwilling. Right. Yeah, I think unwilling <laughs> is, is the word. But suffice it to say that the, the standard and the expectations uh, are, are very high. Uh, we uh, submitted the um, package for approval to the uh, Kenyan Commission on Higher Education in January of 2013. So it took a year to get to get ready. And we were fully prepared for the one-year review process that it typically takes. Uh, and 10 weeks later, we actually got the green light from the education ministry to go ahead. And I believe what happened was they consulted with the, edu- the health ministry which had a sense of ownership, uh, rightfully. They've already
0: been here, they said. <laughs> rightfully, and we
3: had we had input into this whole program, and we really, really need it, so expedite. So uh, we then um, set about to doing two things. Number one, completing recruitment of the faculty, because I had to bring in over a dozen friends of mine from the U.S. and the U.K. to assist with the teaching, because there's they're really... Uh, Although there's a very strong base of faculty qualified to teach typical or general MBA, that was not true in healthcare. So I enlisted some friends who effectively came pro bono um, uh, to do the teaching and to work with local faculty to help develop them in their competence and their skills to teach healthcare management. So we're now down to four international faculty, and the program is. Uh, effectively taught by local faculty that uh, were under the um, um, tutelage for a while of our international faculty. Uh, we're, we now we've had a total of five cohorts uh, in the program. The first two have graduated, uh, with 19 and 34 students respectively. So
0: basically, fifty plus,
3: fifty plus in yeah. the field now. Uh, that's right, and uh, each class we target generally about thirty-five students, uh, and it's working. And we're uh, uh, we're surveying uh, with the help of a group that's been funded by USAID. We're trying to survey impact uh, to see w- what we can do uh, to make the next iteration better. And now there are some international finance organizations and foundations looking at what we're doing and are talking to me about funding uh, what I'm calling the African Institute for Healthcare Management, which is basically designed to develop faculty research and teaching materials in the field so that we can accelerate the the growth and and the expansion of these programs into other African countries.
0: So which African countries next? Which cities?
3: Uh, I'm looking and I've had discussions with the Lagos Business School in Nigeria. And the reason is they actually have a uh, relationship with Strathmore. So it's one of the paths of least resistance. Uh, Ethiopia's health system is very strong and they're amenable to it. Uh, uh, Ghana is a very rapidly developing country as is Zambia and, of course, South Africa. Uh, And uh, we have uh, already alliance with uh, two institutions in South Africa, University of Cape Town and uh, University of Witwatersrand. Uh,
0: so watch out, Steve's coming.
3: Uh, the come, I'm coming. <laughs> uh, and,
0: uh, but this it, huge it, career you've had, which we haven't mentioned, and we don't even need to. Um, and I don't you think are, it's necessary. you don't even, you know, it's like, what's next? We'll do it.
3: <laughs> well, well, you know, it is. It's all about impact, and you know, not to editorialize too much on your on your program. Uh, and while while I think international development agencies, you know, since the Second World War. Have done an incredible job, uh, and poverty throughout the world has been incredibly alleviated. I think there's room for some more stra- new strategies, and the uh, the more we can reduce dependence on aid systems, and do human resource capacity building, uh, the better off we're all going to be, and the more accelerated the growth uh, and the health of these populations is going to be de- 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 developed. And, and this was something I started with the the uh, boot camp that we that you're part of that we started here at Bio, uh, the Bio Entrepreneurship Boot Camp. And in addition to the 13 that we've done here at Bio, I've actually done 41 of them in 14 countries. Uh, including the U.S. over the, you getting uh, pretty good at this. Yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, they don't they don't deport me from the countries <laughs> when I do it, so I guess that's a good sign. Good sign. Yeah, good sign. Uh, uh, but at this point now, through all the boot camps uh, that I've done, uh, we've had well, just in just with bio, we've now had about twelve hundred people go through those programs. Uh, so uh, we're we're up we're up around. Uh, uh, internationally, uh, over 3,000 people. That's a lot of entrepreneurs, even though there's tens of thousands of companies uh, professionally training entrepreneurs to avoid making mistakes. Uh, I think it has a level of efficiency to the industry that we really need. So.
0: Well, Steve, thanks so much, and good luck to you. I know you'll come back and see us, right? Of
3: course I will. It was always a pleasure to be with you.
0: Steve Samet is an international educator in healthcare and life science management. More information about the MBA in healthcare management at Strathmore University in Nairobi, Kenya, can be found at sbs.strathmore.edu. Detailed information on the current status of global health and global health care needs is available from the World Health Organization at WHO.org. When interventions in our health are called for, we think of many things, from physical therapy all the way to surgery. But today, Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft gives us a new one, which is actually a very old one. It's electricity as medicine.
4: Yeah, it's an interesting, not even so new of a field where we're thinking about delivering electricity as medicine. It can be called bioelectronic medicine, electroceuticals, there's a few buzzwords around it. But if you think back in terms of our medical history, we've been doing forms of electricity as medicine since the late 1950s. The pacemaker for the heart is a classic form. Um, In the 1980s, we got the cochlear implants for folks who are blind. That's a sort of a brain-computer interface that listens to sound and transmits that to electrical impulses. We have spinal cord stimulators that we use to manage pain, deep brain stimulators for folks who often have tremors, all the way to um, now newer forms of neurostimulators for like the vagus nerve to maybe impact everything from our, our diet to um, our, our, our sort of ability to, to urinate, sacral nerve stimulators. So the field isn't so new, but we're now, now seeing this convergence of the technology and the data and the hardware come together to be able to think about using electricity, not just centrally with implanted devices, but forms that can work peripherally as well. So it's an exciting era of this form of, of new electricity is medicine.
0: And let me just quickly ask you, in the terms of the pacemaker, not everybody knows exactly what that does.
4: Well, classically, you might have a patient with heart disease where the, the top part of the heart, their atrium, isn't coordinated with the lower parts. So the lub-dub isn't always happening in the normal two-step. And so patients, maybe they've had a heart attack or some other damage to the electrical components of their heart, will need a pacemaker to keep their heart not too slow or not too fast um, so there's sort of the simple versions, which will just pace you, you know, and keep you at a certain heart rate. Now, the newer ones will adjust based on your activity. Some of them even have integrated defibrillators. So if someone's heart starts to quiver and would normally be almost a full-on heart attack, they can re- re-jump start their heart just like you see when folks are on TV.
0: Big charge of electricity. Uh, yeah,
4: <laughs> embedded there. It's a bit of a jolt. People know when that happens. So those are forms of electricity. That have been used uh, in the clinical realm for about 50 years. It goes all the way back even to the ancient Greeks, um, who used to use these electric eels um, uh, on the head to treat epilepsy and headaches. Um, And the 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 Greek word for electric fish is "narca," which means relief from pain. So, uh, like narcotics. So, there's some ancient history to this as well. Uh, But given that we have a lot of you know an aging population, issues with uh, neurologic diseases like Parkinson's and tremor. there's a lot of interest now in using electricity in new ways. Uh, companies like uh, a spin-out from Stanford called Kala Health, led by Kate Rosenbooth, sort of describes this whole evolution as moving from sort of the deep brain stimulation, the big implants, to ways to look at our peripheral nerves. So if someone has a tremor with Parkinson's, we can now treat that with some deep brain stimulation. That's a neurosurgery a bit more involved. But what if you could sort of read the peripheral nerves and then apply some low energy there? That, has, that might have some interesting approaches to, to treating tremor.
0: We always think of our nerves and our brains as having all this sort of electricity running around in them. Is that true?
4: Well we're we're sort of electrical beams. We, we the Internet of Things is the Internet of the of the body. Um, there are even some the idea that, you know, our our, our, our peripheral organs and our internal organs, our blood supply all is affected by the nerves which run through sort of these electrical impulses. And as we can get technology exponentially smaller and cheaper and more integrated We've been seeing companies like uh, Google's Health Verily uh, work with pharma companies like GlaxoSmithKline. They have a new a new company called Galvani, and what they're working to do is make these tiny little bioelectronic devices that can even go around the sheaths of your nerves to sort of potentially regulate organs, like turning on and off the the volume up and down the volume. So we are electrical beings, and we know that our nerve. You know, our automatic, autonomic nerve system, our sympathetic, turning things up and down are, are, is how we regulate our body. And often we use drugs to try and impact, whether it's an opiate um, or other molecules. There's, I think, the interesting potential to blend these two together in this era of electricity as
0: medicine. It really adds a whole new spectrum in the sense that this isn't a one-off or a two-off, if you will, of things. It's like okay, great, we have physical therapy, we have drugs, we have surgery. And that was kind of it. Sure.
4: And because there's so many unmet needs here, um, and we don't want to be stuck on sort of drugs per se, we can think of new ways uh, to apply these in pretty minimally invasive ways. Let's say headaches. Instead of taking uh, a pain medicine, there's now trigeminal nerve stimulators that you can wear on your forehead that apply energy to the trigeminal nerves, which seem to play a role in some forms of of headaches. We have uh, intranasal tear stimulators, little electrical to stimulate tears for folks who often have dry eyes. We're seeing the idea of neuroperipheral therapy, again, for things like tremor. Or you can even go off the shelf and buy wearables for pain. There's a company uh, that makes a device called Quell, which Uh, You can wrap around your knee if you have knee pain and seems to reduce and impact the pain pathway. So uh, really interesting elements here going beyond the the drug or the pure device.
0: And, of course, devices of any sort are much cheaper to develop, easier to get past the FDA, many, many, many months if not years to get to the consumer. So any explosion in innovation that works is liable to get to us quicker.
4: Particularly if it's something implanted in the body, instead of the class one, class two, class three FDA devices, the the more wearable and less invasive it is, the more uh, less complicated the regulatory path is. But we still need to show that these things work. There's still placebo effects that might be there. You may be wearing the the little uh, electrical device on your arm and think it's helping your pain, but it may be in your head. And again, a lot of pain is in your head. We can talk more about uh, the challenge of the opiate addiction era. But we're learning now to to tune our brains, whether it's with mindfulness or virtual reality, uh, other ways to sort of rewire the the pain pathways per se. Another component is not just the devices, but collecting the big data from these. So we're learning how to measure our our neuroelectrical activity. There's the field of optogenetics. There's the fMRI world. So if we start to understand what's happening inside our, our sort of central nervous system and see how that's connected to our peripheral nervous system, we can start to hopefully use the two to program each other and create a variety of conditions.
0: Well, Daniel, this is terrific. I hope we'll talk about this again. It's electric. <laughs> Dr. Daniel Kraft is chief correspondent of Tech Nation Health and the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. More information is available at ExponentialMedicine.com. For Tech Nation Health, I'm Moira Gunn.
1: Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monty Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and internet audio is available on the web at TechNation.com. TechNation and BiotechNation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt you mm-hmm.